0: Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are here before you in your mercy this morning. Help us to come by faith. Help us to be people of mercy. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. All this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 12. I have a couple of lectionary reflections this morning, so I'm going to step back just a little bit away from the text for a moment and talk about what we don't normally talk about here this morning. Now, most of you know this, but I hope you hear all every Sunday, that one of the things that we value as a church, and we do this not only in, in what we say, but actually how we practice our liturgy, is that we really want to value Holy Scripture. We want to value the Bible, which is to say every Sunday we have, a whole, we have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and a New Testament reading, as well as a gospel reading. But some of you might have noticed that that was a little bit different this morning. Did you notice? Now, that's the thing about liturgy. You don't want to notice it. That's the whole point. We don't want to come here to focus on the stuff that we're doing. We want want to focus on the Lord, right? That's the point. It sort of fades to the background, but when things change up, we should pay attention. We should pay attention, and I wanted to invite us to do that here this morning. Now, occasionally, And I looked it up, there's six times, or maybe seven, there's an option as well. Six six times every three years, so every three years through our lectionary, one of our four lessons, or one of our four readings on Sunday morning, is not from the canon of Holy Scripture. What do I mean by that? The canon of the Holy Scripture, or else this closed collection of the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, very infrequently, we will have a reading from what are called deuterocanonical books or else a second canon. That's what deuterocanonical means, a second canon or a second collection. And these books are not, and they have never been, this is why they're not in the canon, they have never been considered canonical throughout the entire church. So that's, that's how they... That's one of the criteria for why things became a part of the canon of Holy Scripture. But they are, as our sixth article of religion, so we have 39 articles of religion here in the Anglican Church, they are to be read for example of life and instruction, these extra books. Okay, so just pause for a second. We didn't actually read that this morning, and our normal practice, my normal practice is actually to substitute that deuterocanonical lesson with an Old Testament lesson. So, so this is one of the reasons why we don't notice it anymore, but I, I decided this morning to take it out of the liturgy, which is always, that's always okay, that's always something that I have permission to do, um, but I took it out so that I could talk about it a little bit here this morning. Uh, We we read these for example of life and instruction, as you might read John Chrysostom or John Piper, living and dead saints, wise guides that point us to scripture. So that's where these fall in in our use of them. So we are free to use these books. We're not free to establish doctrine from them. So we we don't base any of our teachings that we should believe from these texts uh, but we, And we are free also to not use them, okay? So this morning, I exercised the freedom to not use them as a part of our uh, apocryphal or else doubtful books. There's a lot of different words for these. Now, I begin, the reason I begin with this inside baseball kind of conversation is that uh, I, I talk about the lectionary because this kind of issue, this kind of issue is what the Apostle Paul invites Christians in Rome to. To overlook at the beginning of our reading in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1 he invites the Romans to invite those of uh, those other faithful Christians to your church for worship or else invite them over for a meal and don't quarrel over opinions Paul says. Now, we modern Americans, and maybe you're not like me, maybe you are very educated and you know all about these sorts of things, but I always, sort of implicitly, when I come to this letter to the Romans, I have in my imagination one church, one big city, megachurch, this is, I mean, surely this is, the, this is the largest city in the history of the ancient world. There's over a million people for the first time gathered in one place in Rome. And so surely this was like a big megachurch that Paul was writing to. Maybe they met, they rented out the Colosseum on Sunday morning or something like that. No, that's, that's not who he's writing to. He's writing to many gatherings to the to the church or else all of the gatherings of Christians in Rome were were probably closer to what we might consider normal West Virginia on a Sunday morning. So he's writing to the church using your imagination, in West Virginia or else Beckley or whatever you want to think about, Christians in Rome gathered in house churches that were scattered throughout the city. They were outcasts in a foreign land. They mostly tried to keep quiet and live at peace with their neighbors. And in many places and in many times, they were even trying to hide from the Roman authorities. This is the church at Rome he's writing to. And Christians in Rome, they gathered in house churches for different reasons than we do, right? They were doing this to sort of stay out of the eye of the state in a lot of places. They were doing this for different reasons, but the Roman Christians were still prone to divisions, to being divided, different gatherings against different gatherings. Now, we've seen this throughout the letter, This letter to the Romans, very often these divisions were based upon ethnic lines. And you guys know the distinction, right? Jew and Gentile. This is a major argument. This is a major discussion throughout the first 11 chapters in particular. And Paul has spent most of his energy throughout this letter breaking down this ethnic barrier, this religious division, by opening up the whole... Bible, the Jewish scriptures, and pointing to Jesus Christ. He breaks down this wall of hostility. Now, we don't know the extent to which the Roman house churches had contact with, with one another. We don't really know this, but we do know, apparently, that some were unwelcoming toward members of other gatherings. So this maybe feels a little bit more comfortable in a place like West Virginia. We understand this kind of division. So to quote, uh, because it's helpful in the same way that John Chrysostom is helpful, this is, this is from Ben Sirah or else Sirach. Think about it, and I, like, I really like this modern translation, uh, think about it, someday you will die, and your body will decay. So give up hate And live by the Lord's commands, or else the commandments of the Lord. The commands in the covenant of the Most High, Sirach says. Instead of getting upset over your neighbor's faults, overlook them. That's... I think that's pretty good wisdom. What do you guys think? That's the wisdom of Ben Sirah. It's the kind of thing that Paul has said all along in this letter. Stop quarreling and forgive one another. Love one another with a brotherly affection. And better yet, as he says in verse 1 of our reading, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't invite him over just to quarrel. Don't invite him over just to have an argument about theology, to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words... If you have sophisticated, historical, biblical, and this is by, this, I'm I'm trying to be as condescending as possible here. If you have sophisticated, historical, biblical, sacramental Anglican theology, right? Let's be as pretentious as possible. We consider ourselves strong. Or, if you gag when you see a priest wearing robes and lifting up bread and drinking wine. Both are addressed here. I don't care if you think you're right, Paul says. I don't care if you think they're wrong, the other people are wrong. I don't even care if you are right or wrong. It's not about even what you're thinking. He doesn't even address whether you are right or wrong. That's not the point. As if in the answer to the question, why are you here? Why are you gathered in this place? Why are you a part of the church? Paul answers, you are here, you are in Christ, not because of your strength of theology, not because you're strong. You are not a Christian because you eat or you don't eat, both of you. Both of you, strong and weak, are Christian because, Paul says, God has welcomed you. There is his ground. That is his argument. God has welcomed you. This is how you are here. This is why you are here. At the beginning of our gospel reading, which we just heard, this gospel reading from Matthew chapter 18, Peter asks a question that's in the same vein. How often do I forgive those people who I disagree with? And Jesus fundamentally says in this parable, God has welcomed you. You should welcome others. God has shown you mercy. You should show them mercy. And if you don't, what are we doing here? This is the parable. God has welcomed you. So whether you're a Christian Jew who by conviction, and you can have convictions about this, and practice all the Jewish feast days, and you avoid eating meat that isn't kosher, that's maybe sacrificed at a pagan temple, or if you're a Christian Gentile who eats all the meat, you eat everything, you're not a vegetarian, thanks be to God, I'm not a vegetarian, I eat my meat, who counts every day as a feast day, right? Every day is a barbecue to the Lord, it doesn't matter, where you're at there, some of you are like crying amen here and other ways this way. Paul exhorts all Christians in Rome, right now, at this moment, I don't care about your theology or about your liturgy or else your lack of liturgy. I don't care whether you read the Apocrypha or you don't read the Apocrypha. Whether even, whether even if you consider it canonical, like in the Greek West, or else in the Syrian churches, or in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't even care if you think that's part of the actual canon of Scripture. That's, that, is, that is a secondary thing, Paul says. I want every one of you to focus on primary things. Be fully convinced in your mind about all of it, but whether you think one way or another is not why you're here. It's not why you've been made alive. In other words, you are not godly because you are strong. You are not a godly person because you are strong. You are godly because you are gods. He, he, he possesses you. You are his. He makes you godly. The Lord has claimed you as his own. He is your master. He is your king. You are his precious possession. This is why you're godly, not because you're strong. God in Christ has welcomed you. By grace, you are adopted. And so we can be reminded of all the many things that Paul has declared over the church in Rome. You are adopted sons and daughters. You are beloved. None of us lives to himself, Paul says. And none of us dies to himself. If I have any life at all, it is because of the Lord. This is the confession. And if we die... Even then, we'll be, we will be made to stand. We will be made to stand or else upheld, raised again. This might even be pointing to the resurrection. Raised again because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is my first of two uh, lectionary reflections I have one more lectionary reflection but I this is the this is the main point here right what I've what I've said so far is the main point so I want to I want you to be able to remember this point a little bit better by giving you two phrases before I move on to my final lectionary profession uh, reflection I'm going to give you two phrases to think about what I've been talking about so far the first phrase is this we can have unity without uniformity Unity without uniformity. In other words, in Christ, there is presently unity without imposing uniformity. What does that mean? There are essential Christian doctrines. There are essential Christian doctrines that all Christians believe throughout all places, throughout all time. But most of the time, we divide up into our little house churches in West Virginia, wherever we are, wherever we reside, we divide because of non-essential things. Isn't that true? That is totally true. It's very rarely central doctrinal issues that divide us. We don't associate with other Christians because that church over there reads from the Apocrypha by God. I don't, I don't go there. Or We think that my strong theology makes me better than that other church with weak theology. And I'm actually not entirely convinced that we're in the strong camp most of the time. Actually, when I read this, I read us as weak most of the time. We are the people who need, we need humility, we need the older brothers to speak to us. As Paul begins to conclude this deeply theological letter, even as he mentions weak and strong faith, we might expect him to tell us why one faith is weak or one faith is strong. It, it seems to be where he might want to go, but he doesn't even address it. He doesn't even address it. He passes it by. Here at the end, he doesn't care about your theology so even in this most theological of books, stop quarreling over opinions, Paul says, to all of the different gatherings in Rome, weak or strong, dead or alive. So they're, they're alive and free in this part of the city or else they're being put to death every day, all day long. Honor the Lord who has welcomed you. Honor him. He's welcomed you. Give thanks to God and invite someone who doesn't think like you to join you for a meal. This is the impulse. This is the exhortation. So we can have unity without uniformity. We can also belong before we become. We can belong before we become. What do I mean by this? God has welcomed you, Christian. He has adopted you into his family. God has welcomed you. Therefore, welcome others. Welcome others. Hospitality in the ancient world wasn't the practice of welcoming our family. It wasn't primarily the practice of welcoming those whom love us and I love them. It was the practice of welcoming the outsider, else the stranger, someone who was traveling into your town and they needed a place to stay. But... Here's here's the thing. That kind of hospitality stretches us. I don't I don't know if, if many if any of us have even practiced that kind of hospitality. And I want to encourage you to stretch yourself in that way. But even welcoming family, Paul addresses these people who are divided, they're not welcoming one another as brothers. It can be hard, can't it? Like we can acknowledge that they're they're truly Christians and they're truly Christians, but even then it's like I don't really want to share a meal with them. Have you guys been there? Have you been there? Scott Hahn puts it like this. Paul calls the strong to receive the weak into full family communion. Into full family communion. And and he can say this, he can say this even as a Roman Catholic who has a theological conviction that we can't share the table on Sunday morning. Okay? So we can... Even if we have theological convictions that mean that we don't share the feast right now, and that's not a good thing, even if we have that, we can have this mind among ourselves. We can love one another. We can share full family communion. Those who are strong in faith, Han says, must take the lead in showing hospitality. This is the invitation. Welcome the outsider to your table. Adopt, Adopt them into the family from the start. This is... This is the mission of every healthy home or else el- every healthy church. It's, it's maybe very explicitly the mission of Young Life and various other ministries. Invite that person to be your guest of honor. Don't just welcome them into your home. Treat them as your honored guest before, and here's the point, before they're honorable, before they deserve it, honor them as if they are the most honorable person in the world. Love your spouse before they're lovable or else you'll never love them, okay? Forgive your children before they have confessed their sins. I I encourage you, forgive them before the Lord, and in your heart, even when they do something horrible to you, they say something horrible to you, forgive them before they confess their sins, before they've even learned what forgiveness and confession means. Belong before become. You don't have to become a Christian before you can belong here with us. You can be a part of us. You can be intimately involved in the life of our church. I desperately want you to become a Christian. I can say all this and at the same time say, I desire, and I say it every Sunday, if you want to share this this meal, this Thanksgiving meal that we're about to partake in, I want everyone desperately to come. I desire that we would all grow up into a deep, and rich and beautiful understanding of God that's a good thing I want to be I want to become godly and I want all of us to become godly but you can belong here and this is the gospel over us all this morning you can belong before you've arrived before you've become it yet you can come God is welcoming you He has welcomed us therefore we welcome you so in the gospel we are declared beloved before we become lovely. This is very important. And I think this is maybe at the heart of what Paul is saying. Don't, don't quarrel. Don't quarrel over theolo- theology, matters of theology. Share a meal. Be humble. Be humble. One more reflection upon the lectionary. Today is, and it might be shocking to you for, with how long we've been in Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, today is our last reading in Romans. It's our last reading. If you, if you open up the back of your prayer book and you look at the readings, we start Philippians next Sunday, okay? So this is the end. Maybe everyone's super like, man, I'm really glad we're out of Romans now. It's, purgatory's over. Woohoo! Um, speaking of purgatory, never mind. I'm not going to go into purgatory. Uh, we'll talk about that at book club next Sunday night. Greet one another with deep and holy affection. This is how Paul ends this letter in Romans 16. And think about this. Think about divided house churches who are not only ethnically and theologically, but they're just... They just have totally different cultures. They have totally different practices. He says to the church, after he's greeted everyone he could greet everywhere, all over the place, greet one another, greet one another, greet one another, over and over again, greet one another with deep and holy affection, all the churches of Christ greet you. There are many necessary and good exhortations to love in the final five chapters of this letter, and we would all do well to consider them, but I've been, I've been sort of trying not to be my arrogant self who says, I know better than everyone who organized this lectionary, and they're a bunch of not smart people. Let's just say that, right? They skipped Romans 13 and the rest of Romans 14 and 15 and 16, and there's, ugh, I want to be Whatever, all right? Okay, we could. I I have permission. I could talk to my bishop, and I could stay in Romans for the next six years. I don't think you guys want me to do that. (laughs) I don't think that would be good for us, but why this section? Why end here? That's what I've been considering this week, and so this is kind of another lectionary reflection. Why did they pick this section to end with? The last five chapters of this letter are overwhelmingly and it's, it's really interesting, they're overwhelmingly corporate. What do I mean by that? that? These chapters are all about love, and love necessarily requires a conversation with someone else, right? Everything about these last five chapters is other-focused. Remember from Romans 12 and verse 1, the very first appeal, and you might have memorized this as a kid, the first appeal in this last movement of this entire letter to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to god it's a plural exhortation i don't think we hear it that way i appeal to all of you paul says join yourselves together in love and offer up to god one single living sacrifice so he addresses the rest the whole church everyone scattered throughout the church in rome and he says Come together and offer yourselves all together as one living sacrifice to the Lord. And in many ways, this is what Paul does for the next five chapters. He expounds this corporate reality. It's outward. It's ours. It is us. It's we over and over again. We are reminded in various ways that the Christian life must be lived with others or else we fall apart. We fall apart by ourselves. But in all of this outward focus, I can, and we can, and you can, we can lose the gospel in a couple of different ways. As I fix all of my attention upon others and I think of my children because so much of life when you have children in the home is fixated upon children. As I love my wife even when we honor our government to use some other illustrations in the end of this letter when we welcome outsiders when we honor long lists of women and men who are awesome and they deserve our praise and our honor. We can lose the gospel if all we do is focus on everyone else around us. My identity can be wrapped up in that, in everyone else, in all of my duties to them, in all of my service, in all of the stuff. We can lose the gospel if all we do is focus on theology. So this is something else that's outside of us. Constantly focused on who's right and who's wrong and whether I'm right and whether I'm wrong or whether I'm strong or whether I'm weak. My identity is wrapped up in what I think or what I believe or what I do or else what you think. Maybe wrongly, maybe rightly or what you believe or what you do. What a danger and temptation for a pastor. It's it can be all consuming. I want everyone to think right. And that becomes the sum total of my identity. There's a deeply personal exhortation in our text this morning that helps us with these problems, with this losing the gospel even as we try to love and serve everyone and everything around us. There's a deeply personal exhortation that grounds all of this outward focus, and it's in verse 10. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, Paul shifts to an emphatic And singular, it's it's grammatically really interesting and significant, to a singular question aimed to you or else to me, to each one of us as individuals. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and this is from the prophet Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, says the Lord God, Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me. The one true God, every tongue shall confess to God, to the Lord God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Thinking about judgment. I can, I, I'll, I'll say this out loud, it doesn't seem to be a, a gospel reminder, does it? does it? It's like, oh man, now I'm going to be judged, <laughs> me individually. Oh, that's, that's, really, that's real good gospel encouragement to end with, Chris. But it is, this personal exhortation in the middle of these five chapters of mostly outward-focused exhortations isn't a call. Hear this. It isn't a call to stop focusing on everyone else and focus on yourself. That's not what he's inviting us to do. Paul invites each of us individually, and this is so important, to ground everything outside of us and everything inside of us by coming before the face of God. And to be more specific, the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a profound This is a profound theological statement about the divinity of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to go into that too much. But don't judge others. Don't judge yourself even. Come before Christ the judge. Why is this good news? Why is this good news? This is so much better than Sirach. It's John Chrysostom, everybody. Hear this. In the end... It is not the law which will demand an account from us. It's not the law which will demand an account from us, but Christ. It's not an impersonal test or else a test of all these rules and whether I'm strong or weak, but it's a person. And it's the living and dying and rising again, Christ. Paul has released us from fear from the fear of the law. And here is the good news. Here's the gospel right here at the end of this final list of exhortations to all of us. We stand in the end and every day Not before one another first, not before each other, not even before myself. We stand not because of our performance or our theology. And this is the image of the throne room of God. And Christ is ruling as judge. He's seated on the throne as the righteous judge. You can picture for yourself the lamb who was slain. John's throne room revelation scene. This is Isaiah's image. It isn't. It isn't an image of a a slave who is cowering and falling down in fear before God. The one who kneels in this image is kneeling because of humility before Jesus. And at the same time, Paul says, even as he says we fall on our knees before our righteous judge, he is also the one who upholds us. Even as we're on our knees, we can stand up. And we are the passive participants in this moment. We fall on our knees and He makes us rise. He upholds us. He makes us stand up for the Lord is able to make Him stand. This is the scene. Not based upon any law or any strength, but by confession. We're invited to not just serve and not just find all of our identity and all of our sacrifice for people around us and all of the things we do we're invited to fall on our knees and be upheld by our Lord Jesus Christ every knee will bow Paul says in another letter every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord this is our song this is the heart of the gospel and this is what we're invited to do in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.